You guys as tired as I am this morning? Anybody? Lost an hour? Yeah, I sent out uh, emails and tweets this week about rolling your clock up, moving your clock up an hour, and I forgot to do it myself until late last night. So, uh, and then it was like, then it was like, well, now I'm going to lose an hour of sleep. Um, hey, I got a, got something I want to talk to you guys about. So last week uh, I told you that we have entered into negotiations to purchase uh, St. John's United Church of Christ downtown. And I asked you, you to pray, and I said, you know, listen, I want you to know things could fall apart on this deal. I mean, things can fall apart in the middle of this thing. And so I just asked you to pray, and I said, you know, there's like this big difference in what they're uh, asking versus what we're offering, right? Well, um, by Monday morning... That gap had closed, and it was mostly on their side. I will tell you that they made a lot more of a concession than we did. And we agreed on a purchase price for City Church to buy St. John's United Church of Christ. Yeah, you bet. And what that means is that we now enter into a 60-day due diligence phase. And, you know, we'll, we'll do structural and mechanical inspections, roof, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, in addition, there are parking issues that still need to be resolved that we're working on, so things could, you know, they, things could still fall apart. I just, you know, always want to issue that caveat uh, that, that things could fall apart, but they are looking much better as we continue to go forward. Now, what this also means, and I suspect that you won't clap about this, uh, but what that also means is that I'm going to have to come to you in the weeks ahead and start asking for money. Anybody want to clap about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. I love that. No. Uh, I, I, listen, I hate that. I, it, that is like one of the least favorite parts of my job. I don't like to do that. Uh, one of the reasons I don't like to do it, you guys give generously as it is. You know, we just came to you back in like December and we said, you know, man, we really need a push for the year-end giving. And we did that and you guys responded so generously and faithfully that I, I, just, don't, I just don't always want to be coming to you talking about that and asking for money. I hope that you will understand that this is not because all we're about is money. That's, that's not what we're uh, about as a church. Uh, but what we would like to be able to do is to buy that building outright. In other words, we'd like to be able to pay cash for the cost, uh, uh, for the price of the building. And then we will finance the renovations that we will do, and, and uh, the renovations will be significant. Um, we already uh, have approval that uh, we can get money to finance the renovations, but we really want to pay for the building itself outright. So I'm, I would just like to ask you to be praying about this. Um, I'll, I'll be talking more about it, more specifically in the weeks and uh, ahead, uh, ahead. But I would ask you to be praying about this and whether God would have you participate in this, and, and if so, to what extent. And I want to mention to you, too, that, again, after the service today, we'll have a little meeting over here. Anybody that would like to attend, feel free to come. We'll answer questions. We'll talk about all of the details of the contract right now that we're in, and, and we'll talk about the details of uh, fundraising, some of those kind of things, too. Uh, so come over here uh, to the side after the service, and we'll have, a, we'll have a meeting immediately after church. All right? So that's good news, and I'm excited about this, and uh, man, it would be great to get into our own place so that we don't have to do the setup and tear down and all of that stuff every week, and, and so we have our own children's area, and, 
student areas and, uh, you know, all of that stuff. So uh, be praying that God would continue to move and work in this, but also be praying that we would hold this, uh, you know, with open hands and that we would say, Lord, if it's, if it's not what you want, then we don't want it. And so just be praying for that too. Let me uh, say a word of prayer, if you don't mind, before we, uh, before we start. Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you, we ask that you would, uh, Lord, we want your best for City Church. And if it, if it is this building, then Lord, we pray that you would go before us and that you would, uh, the obstacles that are in front of us, Lord, we pray that you would uh, enable us to get through, to get around uh, all of those obstacles. Lord, at the same time, if it's not what you want, then we pray that, that we would be willing to experience that disappointment with courage, with hope, and with perseverance. Lord, we pray for this city. We pray for the city of Evansville. There are so many issues that this city faces. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move through City Church, through every church in the city of Evansville that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for revival in this city. We pray that hearts would be changed in this city. And that as a result of hearts being changed for Jesus Christ, that lives would be changed and the city would be changed as well. Lord, I pray that this morning as we speak, as, as I speak, as we hear what you would say to us this morning, pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, and we pray that you would change our lives today even. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Uh, I may get into serious trouble here in the state of Indiana asking this question, but I'll ask it anyway. What do Bobby Knight, football coach Bill Parcells, and Terrence Fletcher have in common? And I can see on some of your faces already that some of you are angry and you're ready to hurt me. And then there are some of you that don't have any idea who Terrence Fletcher is, so let me just explain. Many of you know that we're in a, it's a short and, and it's a very unusual series of sermons that is becoming somewhat of a tradition for us, if you can count two years in a row as a tradition. I don't know if you can count that or not, but it's sort of becoming a tradition for us, in which we look at four movies that were nominated at this year's Oscars for Best Picture. And we do this because we want to see where theology and, and the gospel and human life and the arts all intersect. And we want to speak to, we want to speak to our culture. And so we want to understand what artists in our culture are saying, because they're often the barometers of society. So far we've looked at Birdman, and we looked at Boyhood last week, and as Sean said a little while ago, He'll be looking at Selma next week. This, week. this week, we're going to look at the movie Whiplash, which examines the relationship between a promising jazz drummer and an intimidating instructor at a prestigious school for the performing arts. And this instructor's name is Terrence Fletcher. So once again, what do Bobby Knight, Bill Parcells, and Terrence Fletcher have in common? And the answer is, all of them will do whatever it takes to get their students to perform at the very top of their potential, even if it might mean crossing significant lines to get there. I want you to watch this movie, uh, this trailer from the movie Whiplash, and I think you might get a sense of what I'm talking about. Watch. This place is nice. I really like the music that they play. 
Bob Ellis on the drums. <laughs> I'm part of Schaefer's top jazz orchestra. It's the best music school in the country. The key is to just relax. Don't worry about the numbers. Don't worry about what the other guys are thinking. You're here for a reason. Have fun. Five, six, and. I want to be great. And you're not. We got Buddy Rich here. Little trouble there. You're rushing. Here we go. Five, six, and. Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will gut you like a pig. Oh, my dear God. Are you one of those single-tier people? You are a worthless pansy ass who is now weeping and slobbering all over my drum set like a nine-year-old girl. So how's it going with the studio band? Good. Yeah, I think he likes me more now. I push people beyond what's expected of them. I believe that is an absolute necessity. I want to be one of the greats. And because I'm doing that, it's going to take up more of my time. And this is why I don't think that we should be together. I would never let him put my son through hell. Why would you let him get away with what he did to you? There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. of you have seen the movie Whiplash? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, of all the movies that were nominated for Best Picture this year, Whiplash was the most intense of them all by a landslide. From beginning to end, uh, this movie, I don't know if this was your experience, this certainly was mine, it keeps your heart racing, it keeps your muscles tense, it keeps your, your nerves on edge. The title is like, it's like dead on. You will get Whiplash from watching this movie. Andrew Neiman, the main character, is played by Miles Teller. He's a gifted jazz drummer attending New York's hyper-competitive Schaefer Conservatory, Conservatory excuse me, of Music. Uh, it's a fictional school. It's clearly modeled after Juilliard. Andrew wants to be one of the jazz drumming greats, and he has a dedication to his craft that matches his ambition. Terrence Fletcher, who's played by J.K. Simmons, uh, who won an Oscar a couple of weeks ago, by the way, for Best Supporting Actor, is a renowned music teacher at the school, and he has the power to launch or cut short young careers. And he rules his classroom with a, with a brutal and manipulative manner. He terrorizes his students with arias of, of profanity, or maybe he throws metal chairs at their heads, depending upon his mood. He is sadistic. He is mean. He is brutal. He is profane. And he, too, is after greatness. He will stop at nothing to find and to develop musical greatness. But make no mistake, this is not just a cliché uh, musical prodigy meets tough love teacher movie. It is set in the context of a young man who wants to be the best drummer in the world, best jazz drummer in the world. But it's really not about drumming as much as it is about ambition in general. Whiplash asks some very important questions about the pursuit of greatness in whatever context you pursue it. 
whether you're the student or whether you're the teacher. Like, how far is too far? What if becoming great at your craft makes you a lesser human being? What costs are acceptable? What if you have to sacrifice relationships with people that are important to you to be great? And as a teacher or a coach, does the fact that you have drawn out someone's full potential justify whatever methods it took to achieve that? Those are some of the questions that the movie raises. And while those are all important questions, I chose two questions that I think the, the, the movie surfaces that are very relevant for us as a church this morning. And those two questions are just simply these. What is the relationship between Christianity and greatness? What's the relationship between Christianity and greatness? Okay. And then the second question that I want to ask this morning is, what is the relationship between Christianity and fear as a motivator? How does fear as a motivator work within Christianity, or does it? Okay. And those are two places that I feel like uh, intersect human life, the gospel, and theology in general that I want to look at this morning. And I want to start with this question of what is the relationship between Christianity and greatness. Now, I want you to understand, don't, don't misunderstand, maybe I should say it that way. The movie makes no suggestion that Andrew is or is not a Christian, it doesn't say anything about his spiritual life, but he does aspire to greatness at his craft. In fact, he says as much. You saw it in the clip. He says that he wants to be one of the great jazz drummers. It's not stated overtly, but the subtext of the movie seems to imply that Andrew's drive comes from an intentional effort to be different from his father, played by Paul Reiser. Any of you remember Paul Reiser from Mad About You back in the 90s? You guys remember him? Okay, good, good. Uh, Andrew loves his father, but he doesn't want to imitate his father. He was, his father was an aspiring writer who, uh, when he was young, uh, but settled for being a teacher. Now, by the way, that's the character's words, not mine. I'm not saying that if you're a teacher that you settled for something. That's, I'm not saying that at all. That's what they said in the movie. Okay? Andrew is so driven to be a great jazz drummer that he often practices until his hands bleed. At one jazz contest, Andrew lo- loses his sticks at a rental car location, and he has only a few minutes to drive back there, pick up his sticks, and, and return. And I'm not going to spoil the movie for you, but on the way back, something happens to him that threatens to endanger uh, his position in the band. But he fights through all of that to make sure he doesn't miss the opportunity in front of him, regardless of the cost. Okay? That's, how, that's how much he is driven to be a great jazz drummer. Is that wrong? Is it wrong to want to be great at something? Can a Christ follower aspire to greatness at his or her craft and still be humble, still be holy, still be godly? And I'm going to tell you something. After spending almost 30 years within the evangelical Christian subculture, I'm not at all convinced that the answer is as self-evident as some of you may think it is. Some of you may think it's ridiculous that I would be asking that question. I don't think that answer is as self-evident as some of you may think it is. I'm not sure that the evangelical subculture 
uh, allows people to be great, to aspire to greatness, to say that they want to be great without making people feel guilty and ashamed. Uh, I came across a link to an article recently on my Twitter timeline that uh, it, it fascinated me, and it was titled this. Uh, it's, it's titled, Why Are Christian Movies So Painfully Bad? And it's a question that I've often pondered. Uh, any of you ever wonder that? Any of you ever wonder that? Why Christian movies? It's okay to say it. Let me just say it for you. Christian movies are usually painfully bad. I'm just going to say it, Okay. So now you're free to say it. You're free to wonder about it. Why are Christian movies so painfully bad? Um, and I, I tell you what I'll do. I'll put the article out on our Think blog this week so that you can read the whole article for yourself. But one of the primary arguments the author makes is that Christian culture seems to wrongly pit greatness against goodness. And here's, here's, here's what the author says. He says, he says, where Hollywood strives for artistic greatness, Christian movie makers just try to be good. Hollywood wants to make masterpieces while Christians just want to communicate good messages. And he goes on to develop that thought more, but I think he's on to something. Not just in the Christian filmmaking community, but also in professions other than, than filmmaking. I think Uh, that there are many followers of Christ who have been taught, either explicitly or implicitly, that ambition is something to be ashamed of, that excellence is something to be ashamed of, that striving for greatness is somehow wrong. Now, I want to concede from the outset. Let's just just say it. Let's concede from the outset that self-knowledge is a very good thing, and it can go a long way to helping a follower of Christ understand some of the unholy motivations that are lurking within everyone's soul and anyone's soul that wants to be great at something. Yes, there are some of those things that are unholy. But just because there may be some unholy reasons for their ambition, does that mean that greatness and personal goodness are diametrically opposed? That's the question. And here's the answer. There is just no evidence in Scripture to suggest that greatness and goodness can't coexist. In fact, To the contrary, both goodness and greatness do coexist in God himself. Psalm 145 verse 3, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. But then the psalmist also says in Psalm 34, 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Greatness and goodness married in God himself. And not only is he both good and great, but all of his works are good and great. In Genesis chapter 12, he tells Abraham, I will make you into a great, but don't talk about great because it might make you not humble nation. No, he says, I'll make you into a great nation. And in fact, if you think back to it, it was the goodness and the greatness of God's work that made Satan's temptation to Eve in the garden so enticing. Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, which means great, she took some and she ate it. Okay, so here's what I'm trying to get at. That this distinction that Christian culture sometimes makes between personal goodness and greatness is just flat out a false distinction. 
personal goodness and the ambition for greatness both display the glory of God. Yes, we should all be concerned at having the right reasons for wanting to be great. No question. Yes, absolutely. And wanting to be great and wanting to be the greatest are two very different things, right? Because greatest is about comparison, which is something that, that, that none of us should uh, get into. We don't want to get into comparison. But goodness and the ambition for greatness can coexist. They can. Uh, that same article that I referenced a, a moment ago asking about why Christian movies are so painfully bad uh, it referenced a, uh, a little story that has been attributed to the great German theologian Martin Luther, though no one is sure whether it really was him uh, to whom this happened or not, but it's attributed to him. And the story goes like this. story goes that a cobbler in his church, in Martin Luther's church, converted to Christianity. And he asked Luther how he could be a good Christian cobbler. You know what a cobbler is? Anybody not know what? Raise your hand if you know what a cobbler is. Raise your hand. Okay, so some of you don't know. A cobbler, that was a, that was a word for someone that, uh, that uh, fixed, repaired, made, whatever, shoes. Did I get that right? That's what, that's, what, that's what it was, right? Not a pie. Okay, he's not asking how he could be a good pie. He's asking, he's asking, you know, how, how can I be good at making and repairing shoes, cobble, okay? And here was what Luther responded. I want you to listen to this. He said, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in craftsmanship. Look, I, I, I'm going to tell you something. I make no apologies for the fact that I want City Church to become a great church. Now, I'm not talking about the greatest. I'm not, I'm not talking about the best. I just want us to be a great church. And I make no apologies for that. I want our message to reflect the greatness of the gospel. I want our actions to reflect the greatness of our God. I want our impact in the community to be great. I want to do things in a way that reflect the greatness of the one in whom we believe. I make no apologies for the fact that what we want to do to renovate this church that we're talking about buying, I make no apologies for the fact that what we want to do there, we want to do it so well. We want to renovate it in such a way that the bar of excellence, not only for churches in the city of Evansville, but also for businesses in the downtown area is raised. I hope it's the kind of place that when we're done renovating it, I hope it's the kind of place that when the mayor and his wife entertain prospective investors in the downtown area, that they take them to City Church to show them what we've done and to show them what the standard is. You better reach this bar or higher. Okay? I hope that's what happens. Why? Why do I hope that? Well, it's because God cares about craftsmanship. He cares about excellence. We represent the God who is the marriage of both goodness and greatness. And what that means for you individually is that if you have talent at something, do the hard work of developing it to the glory of God. If you have a business in Evansville, develop it. Make it great for the glory of God. 
If you enjoy fashion, be fashionable to the glory of God. If you like to decorate spaces, decorate them beautifully and with excellence to the glory of God. If you want to be a filmmaker, make great art to the glory of God. If you're a musician, make great music to the glory of God. If you're a talented mechanic, develop that gift to the glory of God and give me your phone number. There's no reason to be ashamed at wanting to be great at something. That's the relationship between Christianity and greatness. Greatness glorifies God. Nothing wrong with that at all. Second question that I want to ask today is what is the relationship between Christianity and fear as a motivator? What's the relationship between Christianity and fear as a motivator? Terrence Fletcher, the instructor in this movie, believes what many uh, athletic coaches uh, believe, that the best motivation for greatness is fear. And so Fletcher torments his students. He berates them publicly. He humiliates them. He shames them. If you haven't seen the movie, be prepared for this, because that's what Fletcher does. In fact, you'll notice that he even looks terrifying in the movie. He, he'll sometimes materialize in the doorway of a class, almost like a vampire. The skin on his bald head is taut. The ridges in his face are deep and hard. There's no fat on him. He's all teeth and dome and sinew. One moment, he'll apparently be, uh, he, he will be apparently warmly attentive, telling Andrew that the key to playing for him is just to relax and to have fun. And then a moment later, he's taunting Andrew in front of the rest of the band, attacking his masculinity, making him play until he bleeds, screaming profanities at him. And I don't want to spoil the ending of the movie for you, but if you haven't seen it, well, if you snooze, you lose. You know what I'm talking about. In the end, those of you who saw the movie, here's the thing. In the end, it works, doesn't it? I mean, like all of that meanness, all of that sadism, uh, all of the profanities, all the shaming, all the humiliating, it works, doesn't it? This monstrous, inhumane torment pulls greatness out of Andrew. But look, here's the thing. Using fear as a motivator isn't restricted to jazz drumming. Like there are many coaches who've won an NCAA tournament or two, who've discovered that fear is a great motivator. And there are many employers who've learned that fear is a great motivator. And there are many pastors who utilize fear and shame as a way to get the people in their churches to do what they want them to do. And I just, I'm going to ask you something. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand on this. How many of you have had a teacher, pastor, coach, uh, someone in your life uh, employer, someone in your life, use fear, humiliation, shame as a motivator. Just raise your hand. I have. Okay. The question that the movie asks is this. Just because fear works, does that vindicate the method? It's the classic, you know, does the end justify the... Uh, justify the means 
uh, question. Pushing people to the brink can, in some cases, pay off in producing brilliance. But it can also, even in those cases where it produces brilliance, it can be inhuman. It can be soul-killing. It can even be criminal. It can screw people up for life. And there is a scene in the movie in which Fletcher learns that one of his other past prodigies who had achieved greatness under him has died. And he walks into the room where his students practice, and he's in tears. It's a jarring display of humanity that confuses all of them. And, and in fact, it confuses all of us who are watching the movie. And he puts a CD in that reminds him of his former student, of something that he had played. And, and he explains to them that the student had died in a car accident that day. Only, we learn later, that it wasn't a car accident at all. The student hung himself. After a long battle with depression and anxiety that had begun when he was a student under Fletcher and his methods. Why does Fletcher lie about that? Perhaps it's a question that he's afraid to ask. Does the end justify the means? And what's interesting is that the movie really doesn't answer the question. It lets you answer the question, and it lets you work it through for yourself. And I'm going to honor that decision of the, of the filmmaker to just let you work that through for yourself. Does the end justify the means? But I will say this. It is fascinating to me that when it comes to turning sinners into saints, when it comes to taking broken people and producing great people, God will have no part of fear as a motivator. No part of shame and humiliation as a motivator. I want you to listen to these verses. First uh, John chapter 4, there is no fear in love. But perfect love, the context here is the kind of love that God has demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. First John says, Romans chapter 8, there for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now here's the question. Why does God not use fear as a motivator? So many of us do. I mean, I'm, I'll tell you, I've been guilty of this. I've certainly been guilty of this in my parenting. Uh, you know, like, just you get mad at your kids and, and you're like you've tried everything else and finally you just come down on them and you remind them that you pay the bills and you pay for their food and their shelter and their clothing and that they got nothing apart from you and, and, and if you don't do what I ask you to do, then you're going to lose everything. You know, that kind of thing. I've used fear as a motivator. I certainly have done that. Why doesn't God use fear as a motivator? And the answer is, is that fear only affects behavior. Yeah, I mean, you, listen, I'm not going to lie to you about this. You, you can get people to behave in the way that you want them to behave. You can get them to do what you want them to do. But you can't change hearts with fear, which is what God wants to do. He wants to change people from the inside out, change a heart, change a life. That's sort of the approach that God takes. And I want to tell you something. As I watched Fletcher terrorize Andrew throughout this movie, calling him names, shaming him, abusing him, screaming profanities at him, 
I couldn't help but think about how similar Terence Fletcher is to the voice that is in many uh, many people's heads that I think many people often confuse with the voice of God. It shouts at you. It screams at you. It shames you. It humiliates you. It tells you what a loser you are. How worthless you are. And I think there are a lot of people that live with that kind of a voice in their head. And they mistake that for the voice of God. If you were taught either explicitly or implicitly a perverted, legalistic version of Christianity that preached a pseudo-gospel in which salvation or blessing or approval of God is based in any way in your performance, you will likely have an angry, shaming, humiliating, guilt-inducing voice in your head that you mistake for the voice of God. You've heard me reference this before. I'm going to warn you that it's a go-to for me, so I'll reference it again uh, in the future. It's just kind of a regular thing that I do from time to time. Uh, but A.W. Tozier, some of you know A.W. Tozier, who wrote the, one of the great books that he wrote was called The Knowledge of the Holy. He wrote, he wrote this in that book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, The most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And he goes on and he says, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. In other words, the way that we perceive God affects the way we live. And this is one of the reasons that it's so critically important that we get the gospel right as a church. It's one of the reasons that we hit this so hard, so frequently, so regularly, every Sunday. I want to make sure that we understand the gospel correctly, that we get it right, because everything we do, we live our lives out of that gospel. We experience the gospel or we don't experience it in our daily lives on the basis of whether we understand it correctly. Not only does our understanding of the gospel proclaim verbally what God is like, but it also affects the way we live, which also proclaims what we think God is like. And if City Church produces people who live in fear and shame and who are loaded down with guilt, or if our culture as a church is riddled with fear, we aren't preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you may know this. Some of, some of you who are new may not know this. Most of you know this. Uh, back late last year, we did this event in our city, and it was called the Great Porn Debate. And we brought a guy in from California who... Uh, He's a a pastor, and he speaks about pornography. And then we also brought in a porn star by the name of Ron Jeremy, who is pro-pornography. 
There are many reasons that we did this. One of the reasons we did this, obviously, was to address the issue of pornography, to help men in particular, but women too, uh, young men, men, women, young ladies, to find help uh, if they're wrestling with pornography in any way, shape, or form. But there was another reason that we did it, one that wasn't one that, that was sort of proclaimed or that was advertised. And one of the reasons we did it was that I wanted us as a church to not be a culture that is riddled by fear. I wanted us to be the kind of church that says, we'll take risks, we might even make some mistakes, but we know that we have a God who loves us. We know that we have a God who is for us. And even if we make mistakes, even if we get out there on the edge, even if maybe we even cross the line accidentally, not intentionally, we believe that our God is for us. We can't be a culture that's riddled by fear and also preach the gospel at the same time. If we're a culture riddled by fear, we're not getting the gospel across. Okay? And likewise, if you're living with Terrence Fletcher in your head, if you're full of guilt and fear and anxiety and shame, you aren't experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ yourself, and you're not proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people around you, to your family, to your friends. When it comes to creating great people, When it comes to turning sinners into saints, the gospel says that the very best motivator is love. Now, yes, in a fallen world, I want you to know this, in a fallen world, there is a place for adversity in developing greatness. No question. Adversity is an important part of developing greatness. But God says that love is the best motivator for greatness. I want you to look at the banners on the far side, either side of the room. The very first banner, the very first banner, I want you to notice. It says believe, believe. Notice that it doesn't say believe and obey. It also doesn't say believe and be baptized. It doesn't say believe and take communion. It doesn't say believe and pray. It doesn't say believe and have quiet times. It doesn't say believe and read your Bible. It doesn't say believe and be sinless. It doesn't say any of those things. It just says believe. Why? Because that, in a nutshell, is the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He lived a perfect life, that He died on the cross for your imperfect life, and was raised again from the dead. Because the gospel, you see, is about His performance, not yours. If you understand that correctly and take it deep into your heart, that profound demonstration of love will change your life. It will change your emotions. It will change your behavior. Not because you're afraid. You take that deep in your heart, it'll change you. But it won't change you because you're afraid. It won't change you because you're ashamed. It won't change you because you're humiliated. But it will change you because you realize you have been loved perfectly by the most important person in the universe just as you are. Jesus took the fear, he took the guilt, he took the shame, and he took the humiliation that was ours so that we would never have to. And that reality, his love as demonstrated on a Roman cross, it changes everything, even your very heart. If fear, guilt, shame, and humiliation are your reality, if those are the voices that you hear in in your head, would you consider again the beauty of the gospel? Would you meditate on the beauty of the gospel? Would you allow yourself to experience the beauty of the gospel? 
which is the power of God to transform sinners like us into saints through the most profound demonstration of love in Jesus Christ, which the Bible tells us compels us, not scares us, not shames us, not humiliates us, not guilts us, but his love compels us to radical and profound greatness as human beings. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Forgive us, Lord Jesus Christ, for ever using fear as a motivator in people's lives. It works. It works. But fear is not about what you are about. Forgive me as a pastor, as a parent, as a friend, as an employer, for ever using fear uh, in people's lives to motivate them. Lord, I pray that as a church that we would recognize that goodness and greatness go hand in hand, that both glorify you, that there is no conflict between those things. And Lord, would you allow us as a church to get the gospel right, to communicate it clearly and correctly, the beauty of the gospel that Jesus Christ performed where we could not perform perfectly. Jesus Christ died the death that was ours to die. And that by believing on him that we are saved. Or would you allow us as a church to get that right? And would you allow us as people to let, to, to let that absorb deeply into our souls, to let us be permeated with the beauty of the gospel? Because it's that beauty of the gospel and the love that was demonstrated there that compels us to be transformed. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that this message would go forth throughout the city of Evansville and beyond because as a church, we want to bring spiritual and social and cultural renewal to this city through a movement of people who are being transformed by that gospel, Lord Jesus Christ. That's our prayer, that we would do that, that we would be that church. And we all praise you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray and worship.